You may find this hard to believe, but 60 songs that explain the 90s, America's favorite poorly named music podcast is back with 30 more songs than 120 songs total. I am your host, Rob Harvilla, here to bring you more shrewd musical analysis, poignant nostalgic reveries, crude personal anecdotes, and rad special guests, all with even less restraint than usual. Join us once more on 60 Saws That Explain the 90s every Wednesday on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now, they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. For first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio, he feels for the next person going into that Valentino changing room. It's Andy Greenwald! I feel for that person, meaning I feel sorry for them, or I am feeling for them in the dark <laughs> and touching whatever's in the room. I want to know your construction there. Uh, prayers up to the, anybody who throws a black light on that dressing room. You know what I'm saying? It's great to see you, Andy Greenwald. Yeah. Happy Monday. Uh, today on the Watch Podcast, we have Gail Simmons, one of our faves from Top Chef, to talk all things season 20 and talk about the London season and also the future of Top Chef. So that yeah. was a very, very lovely conversation, as it always is with Gail. I was so glad she joined us. How are you doing today? I'm great. I wanted to wish you Happy Father's Day as father of the podcast. <laughs> Father of Idol Gang. Yes. You have birthed a whole new realm All of discourse. <laughs> How does it feel hold like being that influential? That you are you are the one that they you know, you know the way like when politicians there's certain like think tanks that they'll cite, you know? It's yeah. like, well, according to the data from the American Enterprise Institute, this and that. You are the American Enterprise Institute for the pro-idol gang. Uh-huh. I clicked on a, a vulture story by, I think, Nate Jones, and it yeah. was saying, like, give in to the idol. And I was like, it's interesting. Someone else is over here. And in fact, he was just leasing space <laughs> on your island. Because he was like, he, 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 he what did he compare you to? Uh, Gunter Grass? I said, said I was banging the drum. Yeah. Yeah. Um, How does that feel? We'll get to the idol. Okay. You know, I, let's, not, let's not give away all our wares. In the first few minutes, can I can I keep things um, inside baseball for a second? Mm-hmm. You know, you were people know Chris. You were doing some international traveling, yeah. Um, yeah. Like Tedros, Tedros, you're a man without one defined <laughs> origin point or origin I story. Did not finish education. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's a great point. Yeah. Where are you from? Hollywood? Yeah. Question mark. Um, so while you were away, you know, obviously Kai and I had uh, had different responsibilities that we that we shouldered. One of which was I, I did a couple ad reads. Yes, I and heard I feel about like we should talk thing. about this. So 
We've ne- I don't know if this we've is ever- what you want to lead the podcast. Yeah, with? well, I just feel like okay. no, we're going to talk about the idol, but this is how we keep them going. Also, we're talking commerce, which yeah. is good for us. Probably, we'll also be talking about righteous gemstones, just so everybody knows. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I can't wait to talk about righteous yeah. gemstones. I guess I just wanted to have this on the record because I don't know if we've ever discussed it. There was a point when we first started getting ads that I think we shared them, and then. It seemed like because in an attempt to, again, like the father of the podcast that you are, you were shielding me from the harsh winds of capitalism yeah. to keep my artistic spirit pure that you just took on the ad reads. Uh, and I don't know if I, first of all, I don't know if I've ever thanked you for that, but I, I also think don't was, know. I think it was just a product of the fact that you were often like, gotta go, you know, whatever you were doing, whether it was <laughs> making a television show or or being a, a, a doting father, you know, yeah, thanks, like yeah. it was like, you just were like, I gotta go. And then also... I think that, um, you know, brands just prefer yeah. a, n- a name they can trust, you know? Well, also someone who uses the products <laughs> to the degree that you do. So I think that's important. I, I, but I was struck by, so I, I I don't mind reading ads. I think it's fun to read ads, Kai and I. We had a great time. Isn't that, she's nodding. Yeah. Um, the one thing I have to clarify, though, is I, I did see some chatter online suggesting that I personally get paid more for doing the ads. And I was doing it because I'm a writer and I'm on strike. I see. Um that is not true. Okay. I remember you saying at some point there was some some Miller beer that was earmarked for no, me. No, I didn't say that. I said home. there was some merch for you that I have at the house. Okay. Yeah. So let's yeah. talk about that off air. But no, there is no extra financial incentive to who reads the ad, unless you want to confess something now. <laughs> is this your, are you trying to like put me in a corner? Don't put baby in a corner. <laughs> Listen, I don't know. All of a sudden you're like, the idol is good. The, we we, we, we have like a very elegant system of doing the advertisements. Okay. I'll leave it at that. Andy, I, I know that your money is on your mind right now mm-hmm. because despite seeing The Flash four times this weekend. In many universes. It fucking bricked. It really did. <laughs> I kind of was surprised by that. I want to ask you something. Uh-huh. So obviously Flash wound up making a 55 mil domestic. Bro, that's less than Black Adam. Yeah. And... um. You know, augurs poorly, I suppose, for the current state of... I mean, I think that in general, everybody's been talking about this, that there's been a little bit of anemia at the superhero box office over the last couple of months. I think there's also been a little bit of a... We're, we're very much in a creative drought. Like, even even the people who are, like, saying, no, 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 you don't like... You don't understand. Yeah. They're setting this up, or this is happening, or, you know, you guys just don't even like it. It's like, I think everybody is kind of like, it's been a minute since we've had a banger, right? Yeah. We, I was. We didn't even see Guardians, did we? Uh, I have not seen Guardians of no. Galaxy three yet. I mean, why would I? It's over, right? You know, that's the end of the trilogy. <laughs> uh, I saw an interesting discourse on the internet over the weekend that I thought I would I would kind of bring to you. Mm-hmm. And it's largely I was it was it was coming out of reading Bellany's uh, Matt Bellany's great uh, what I'm hearing uh, newsletter, and then there was some stuff out of that because Matt often talks about the projections for you know the box office over the coming weekend. And then I saw a couple of people discussing this online where it was like, is there something wrong with tracking? Ah. And is there something wrong specifically with the tracking, the box office projections for superhero films? Because superhero films keep coming up short in their projections versus what they actually make, whereas non-superhero fare is now somewhat overperforming its tracking. Um, over the like your John Wicks, your whatevers over the course of the year have done better than they were sort of assumed to have to be doing. And then the superhero movies keep coming up short. Mm. I'm going to throw a theory at you. Tell me if you like this. All right. We have created such an industry, such a hype apparatus Mm -hmm. around superhero movies. Because for the last few years, 
quite candidly, they have driven a lot of uh, attention. They have driven a lot of clicks. They've driven a lot of engagement. So there's so much online chatter and discussion of these movies and the casting process and the shooting mm-hmm. process and the marketing process, the pre-release hype cycle, that it's creating an inflated idea of how popular they actually are in some ways or maybe how permanent they were yes, in some ways. I think that's right. And even though there is not like some obvious alternative to superhero films right now that is like coming up from from behind to take the lead that we may actually be seeing that if you are making mediocre product and they don't look finished and nobody knows who these people are in the movies or they're not really as emotionally invested as some of the cameos that are coming back mm-hmm. as you thought they were that actually like blogging about like what does the end of the flash mean for the future of the DCU for like eight months before the flash comes out actually doesn't really like, it doesn't actually like accurately represent the true interest in these stories or movies. I think that's exactly right. I, this pulls together some strands that we've been pulling out for a bunch of weeks, if not months. Right. But we fundamentally broke entertainment Mm -hmm. when we untethered it from any reality, like any sort of like, you know, this is the same conversation we have with, we used to make television shows, advertisers bought space so there was money coming in and money being spent on the show and money coming in and we understood what that looked like on our ledger that got broken in television similarly in movies the idea that going to the theater was a thrill ride experience and it needed to hit certain beats and it needed to have certain levels of content or excitement or cgi or kind of connective tissue to get people to spend that money to leave their houses became sort of understood as important holy writ this is all happening on the backdrop of something that that you and I understand, maybe me a little bit more than you, which is that Twitter is not real life. Um, and <laughs> that feeding the beast of coverage of exclusive costume reveals or Easter eggs or blog posts or tweets, like I don't think the average Joe or Jane popcorn gives a shit about any of that mm-hmm. or is paying attention to any of it. But in the absence of any other tangible return on investment, you point to that stuff. I mean, do you remember, I don't know if it's still going on, but it is absolutely true that casting decisions over the last five to 10 years were made based on follower count yeah. for a time. Um, you know, so, which, is, which is why some casting decisions were met very well with great reviews in Russia where the bots who follow that actor <laughs> yeah. were based. Where, um, where the idol gang the, is mostly situated. <laughs> the other thing is that, perhaps, the, the other thing is that you know, the creation of the superhero shared universe tentpole thing was seen as the ultimate cheat code to avoid the central problem of the expensive business of movie making, which is certainty. You know, and that's why we got those lists of like Warner Brothers, you know, schedules the next 10 years of content on these weekends with untitled films because it gave shareholders and everyone some sense of security that there would be some return on that investment. It doesn't take a rocket science a rocket scientist or uh, a part-time ad reader on a podcast to be like, the quality of the movies probably matters too. It does. I mean, and and it's it's that's super basic and super reductive. But all of the things that I'm just sort of poking at or trying to grab my arms around is how you end up with a movie like The Flash, mm-hmm. which I think it is fair to say no one wants. No one wanted. There is no built-in fan base for this weirdly stapled together hydra right. of a film. But it's not a Flash movie, isn't it? Well, that, I mean, that's, that's, it doesn't even want to be what it is. It is, it, it is a collection of 
desperate Hail Mary solutions to problems that were self-created, right? And I don't even say this as, as a criticism of any of the people involved, maybe who all of whom I've spent years trying to make the best that they can of it, you know? But it all it, it, think about all the decisions that led to this point. Like, where's the fan base for a Flash movie? Well, the Flash movie exists because they wanted to do a Justice League and they wanted to do Marvel, so they scheduled a Flash movie. Um, as recently as last year, people at DC, at, at Warner Brothers, wanted to scrap this movie mm-hmm. because of potentially quality control issues, but also Ezra Miller control issues. And both from a potentially like, we don't know if this is a well person, we don't know if we can support this person, given what's going on. Uh, in their personal life and behavior and criminal record, but also just potentially cynically being like, Ezra Miller, the star of The Flash, will not be able to promote The Flash. Right. And we're going to have to answer questions we don't want to answer, so why should we go down that road? And so then you just keep throwing things on it in an attempt to like make it better with cameos and in-jokes. and What is it? Yeah. I, I mean, I think people, we have not seen this movie. So we are, it's amazing how much podcast air we've gotten out of it. But it does feel like, for as much as I was saying, people will point to Spider-Verse as what this era got right. This may be, I don't think it's going to be the nadir because there's still so many of these things coming. But yeah. people might point to this as like, what the fuck happened to mainstream entertainment? I think it's a much larger conversation. I actually, I'm, I, I, I think I'll go see this movie, you yeah. know, just to kind of like have, the, have the, the data points there. I've pretty much like broken the seal and read extensively about what happens in it. But I would argue just that like, the issue that they're having is maybe that they are making a Flash movie that is also a Batman movie that is also a backdoor Supergirl mm-hmm. movie that is also a Justice League movie that is also a multiverse movie that suggests that a lot of people like really do have preferences. And they do have... that. There's a Batman that they think is Batman. And that there right. is a timeline that they think is the timeline. And that they have like kind of invested a certain... like emotional equity in there being a consequence to an action or something matters. Yeah. And I think that they've kind of really killed the golden goose with doing multiple franchises, doing multiversal storytelling at the same time on both the big screen and the small screen. I think it's, I think it's a mistake and I do not think, I think it's cool as a reset, like in the comic books, like when people are like, you know, we gotta we gotta wipe the slate. Let's do a big crossover multiversal mm-hmm. event. I do not think it works in two hundred fifty million dollar budget movies. Also, who are you marketing for? I do think that the incredible thing of the last fifteen years was that it turned out everyone was a fanboy or a fangirl and cared to some degree, maybe even surprising to them about comic book storytelling. But not everyone reads comic books. Not everyone left. Very few Kai people. Is currently dressed as Rocket Raccoon. So yeah, it's pretty amazing. That is true. The change that it's had on people in our <laughs> lives. But very few people left the multiplexes and went s- straight to the the comic book store to buy the graphic novel of the Korvac saga. From that, that's an Avengers thing. Yeah, so right. I could explain it. Gotcha. If you want, but we have Gail coming on later. Um, there is a Gail is thrilled. <laughs> she loves this <laughs> multiversal storytelling and modern erotica. I mentioned plus Gail Simmons. <laughs> That's a great point. Well, we enjoyed our last interview with Gil Simmons. Yeah. Um, I mean, our final one. Um, there is a, a subset of the American culture, global culture consumer, that just loves all of it and loves the possibility of multiversal storytelling. And it's all fun and give me more, 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 more. But I do think there's something pretty traditional about the down the middle, this Joe and Jane popcorn I've created, I'm going to stick with. They liked the Avengers movies because it told a story that ended. They'd like the Avengers movies. Because the, the decisions that Tony and Steve made 
mattered, and then we haven't seen them again. Yeah. There was a closure to that, and people rewatch that movie because it means something, and people continue. I believe you continue to rewatch like the Lord of the Rings movies because they were like, they were finite statements about these characters, and you can revisit them. I don't think people have the same relationship with something that goes on forever and doesn't matter. They are absolutely robbing I, Peter to pay Paul. Why did you try Paul. to Frodo shame me just there where you're just like, I believe you watch the Lord of the Rings films still to this day. Uh, well, I, I, for two reasons. One, I'm, I'm, I'm pre-itchy of our idle conversation <laughs> okay. that's coming. And two, you know, I, I, I've seen the numbers. Uh, there are two things that really juice this podcast. Three, one, uh-huh. Gail Simmons. Two, controversy. Three, me doing ad reads, bro. <laughs> so, Not hobbits. <laughs> So, no, but but th- this is true. And I think that the, the other piece of this story that is interesting to me, I, we said this last week, the only person who's winning right now is James Gunn, who said all the right things. This is a great, great story and now has complete carte blanche to do what he was already doing, mm-hmm. which is start over with kind of more open-hearted versions of the characters that will potentially yeah tell he's like a tanking gm who goes out yes. and it's just like every day these guys give everything and then he's like but i'm, I'm gonna previously <laughs> trade everything of value <laughs> so the, that we can start again with victor the crazy thing is for me is that andy machete who directed the flash and you know you I, i've never seen any of his movies he and his wife is his producing partner they did the it movies they have a relationship working with warner brothers his reward for making what zaslav and james gunn said was a great superhero movie and for towing the line and delivering something that seemed impossible, his reward is to direct the next new Batman movie. Yeah. Now, this is a literal, a financial reward, I'm sure. But, I, man, I don't know. I just, you know what? I, I'm all about the kids. And the kids at film school, and they're like, what is my career path? And it's like, <laughs> I get to spend three years wrestling with an international uh, public re- relations fiasco to make a movie that no one likes. I think and my the kids at film school more. are like, you know, how do I make a YouTube video where I set off a bunch of fireworks and a Ford Focus? You know, and, and how many views? Will That's that? my The Brave and the Bold. <laughs> That's right. So it's just, it's a weird, it's a weird moment. It doesn't, the, I think you're also responding to the like, hey, guess what? That Flash movie that we said was a disaster and that Pixar movie that we think might be good, but is also a sign of like systemic rot at a once proud company. They both tanked this weekend. Yeah. That's where we're at. Should we talk about what a time it is to be a Mac subscriber? <laughs> this is all you ever want to talk about. Let's talk a little bit about Gemstones, which is back for its third season. You're making them wait for Idle Talk, so you want to go Idle into Gale? Let's do Let's do Idle first. That's fine. I think we should. I think we need a buffer. Do you want to start? No, I want. I, I want to watch you do this. No, but do you want me to watch me do what? That's w- that is a that is a charged statement in in context in, of the Idle. In <laughs> this conversation, I am Tedros. You are Jocelyn. Yeah, and um, you know. Show me what you got. Well, it's as as it, people who know me know, it's been a minute since I've had a hairbrush. You know, um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> I was trying to think about how to talk about this episode, okay. which uh, I found uh, I'm never bored watching this show. Okay, that's what I want to say, and I want to ask you if because, you ever are. Because what are you doing on your phone when you're watching it? I'm not actually looking at my phone. I, I okay, I am bored. I Are am, you? yeah, yeah, and a little bit increasingly sickened. Okay, um, I, I think that th- this episode made it clear that daybreak. By the way, the there, third episode. There are as- We're halfway through. By the way, there are. Th- oh my God, <laughs> there are things here that I yes, I see that they are interested in flirting with the idea of comedy. 
that there are things that are intentionally meant to be either funny or uh, undercut the supposed ego or majesty of our main characters. I, uh-huh. I, I get that. Um, Tedros broadly in his behavior at the store and things like that. He quotes, uh, I mean, without acknowledging it, he quotes Richard Gere from Pretty Woman. I, I, scene. I don't think the people making the show or writing the scripts are, are funny. Uh-huh. So I don't think it's funny. I think it's winking or trying to wink in the direction of comedy. I also think that the show, to succeed... You don't think Rachel said it looking like her like cutaway looks at them is not supposed to be funny in the beginning of the It is supposed to be funny. No, no, I'm saying there were things here that were clearly supposed to be funny. Okay. And sometimes they achieved that level of funny. I think that that, um, Hank Azaria... And what's the woman from High Fidelity who plays Destiny, Divine uh, Randolph? Is that her name? Yeah. And Rachel Snedek. Like, the, these people know how to work with, with material. Yeah. I think that the, the, for the show to succeed on any level, and still, you know, I'm not, I want to deal with the text as we're given. Sure. I'm not, like, assuming uh, uh, ill intent or anything. I mean, I'm not, we're, let's see where this is going. But for it to work, it requires you to believe some level of pathos or emotional life within its characters. And you also have to believe some level of, of charisma uh, in Tedros Ted? yeah. and his cult. Yeah. And I think it's if very... If his name was Ted, would you believe him more? It was just Teddy. I mean, that was the same advice I gave the Unabomber. <laughs> Years ago, he reached out to me. I, was like, I told him, Ted, it's never going to work. I was like, Teddy, it's not going to work. <laughs> yeah. They're not going to take you seriously. Do you listen? He... We have to buy into the the menace and the power of it and the manipulation. And it's an incredibly difficult tightrope walk narratively to do both. Yeah. So it becomes, to my eyes, it becomes kind of nothing. Are you satirizing something? If so, what? And to what end? What are you showing us? What do you want us to, what is, what, what do you want to reveal to us as being ridiculous? Celebrity? Um, Los Angeles shopping? Okay. Yeah, these seem like pretty easy targets, and not necessarily worthy of a multi-million-dollar show. I don't know that they're satirizing uh, Los Angeles shopping. I no. think what it's doing is showing his insidious way of manipulating her, which is essentially like lavishing attention while also pulling away capital and right. taking what he needs I, from her. And like, so he's pretending like he's taking her shopping. She's paying for that those clothes. Uh, That's the difference between. He makes a pretty woman joke. I don't know if it was... In, I mean, I think it was intentionally written that way. It's the... Yeah. Is there anything in this store as sexy as she is or whatever? And... But in Pretty Woman, Richard Gere buys out the store. Yes. In this show, he is manipulating her where she now walks out with $30,000 with the Valentino stuff. And that's... You know, it's... it's Look, op- yeah. If, if it's true, if the reporting is true that the original Amy Simons version of the show was scrapped because... The weekend felt that it was too privileging of the female gaze. Mission accomplished. Mm-hmm. Because I know absolutely nothing. I mean, I know some biographical details now about her mother, but I broadly know nothing about what Jocelyn thinks about any of this and why she would be put in this situation, which maybe the show is trying to suggest is a problem with the world because, as we saw, everyone in her orbit seems ready to pivot if there's money to be made, which I think is, you know, and we're we're turning a blind but, eye to the abuse that she was suffering because it was working for them at the right. time. Right. So that that's baked in there and that there's there's interest there, but every single thing about her, her body in these clothes, her behavior, her willingness to be beaten by 
Tedros with the hairbrush, which ends the episode, Happy Father's Day, America, um, is entirely external, and we're just watching her. And, I, and, that, and that doesn't, I mean, that feels super gross, I think. But beyond that, like... Super gross because she, in, she willingly goes back to that place of trauma. No, no, I'm not even going to read into like I, I'm open to characters uh, doing self destructive things. Yeah, yeah, working through shit like that. It's not about that. It is the way the show is is constructed that I find very curious, and at its most neutral, my, my most neutral way of viewing it, it's it it it's keeps it it's very off putting. Again, a literal like I can't find a way in. Because what am I watching? Who am I? What am I watching it for? And to what end? Yeah, I don't. I certainly don't have a transactional relationship with the show because I find it visually pretty compelling to watch. You know, I don't find it ever dull to look at. I don't find uh, there to be that many wasted shots. There are some that are quite gorgeous, mm-hmm. just in terms of framing or in terms of the, you know, the, the camera. The trees movement. on the car in the beginning. I yeah, liked. and I think it's in some ways, so well shot that it is muddying the line between the satirical elements of it and the sort of melodramatic elements of it. Yeah. I was watching Black Mirror this weekend. We can talk more about that later in the week. Yeah. But it's very clear when you're watching a comedic episode of Black Mirror and you're watching a horrific episode of Black Mirror, even though some of the things that happen in the comedic episodes are horrific. Signals it with the way it's shot. It signals it with the music. It signals it often with the tone of the acting that you almost are aware that you are watching kind of a broader satire rather than a what if reality was just tweaked two degrees and this terrifying thing mm-hmm. happened to somebody. And that would go, you could go back to White Bear as like the best example of that, that kind of episode. I don't think Sam Levinson is ever really changing. There's no difference between the way the opening 25 minutes are shot, which is somewhat comedic, I think, although still sexually depraved, to the way the last 25 minutes are shot, which is obviously from the point where they start talking about Robert Plant losing his child through the long dinner, which is kind of like, you know, I mean, not to compare it to the master, but it is almost like it reminded me a lot of some of the things you hear about Scientology sometimes in terms Uh of like the penetrating sort of repetitive questions. And I think that there actually is something, don't hold me to this, in Scientology about basically reliving trauma to burst through it. And if that is true, and if this is kind of this idea that he's putting, indoctrinating her into his cult and that Mm -hmm. he has like five or six mental tricks that he's playing on her, I thought it was like interesting and compelling to watch that depicted. And ultimately, the meta thing that I keep responding to was at that dinner when they're talking about the idea of whether there are calculated risks. Right. And this idea that, like, it's not a risk if you know how it's going to play out. Mm-hmm. And that is essentially what this show is doing. You know what I mean? Like, this show is 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 obviously missing the mark with lots of people. You know, like, pe- there's people who find it, like, appalling. There are people who probably find it just dull, you know, and don't respond to the weekend or don't respond to whatever. But it is clearly trying to say, like, you can't do something transgressive and also know how it's going to work out. Yes, I understand that and I'm sympathetic to it. I think it actually speaks to what so far through three episodes I think is the fundamental flaw of the show, which I think it doesn't actually have a point of view. Hmm. I don't think it has anything to say. I think it's it's the thing that it wants to say is you're too afraid to say anything, anybody. Look what we're going to do. Okay, why? Why? 
and I don't mean like every episode has to be a very special episode about uh, psychology yeah. or therapy right. or trauma or or celebrity. I'm just saying it's pretty tough to create this character, have it be kind of funny half the time, have it be kind of, um, it's it sort of a, a creepy voyeurism of this main character, this actor and her and her body and her outfits. I don't think it has any empathy for her. And I think that- Oh, we, I disagree. I, I think, I don't think it has any empathy for anyone. And I think that, I think that good art has to come from a place of having some empathy for people on a I human I thought she level. was really great in the dinner scene. I'm not saying the actor And I think good. that she actually had like, you know, there was some pathos there. I, I, I think I, that I don't want to like make it be like, I'm, I'm. No, no, yeah. I, I, it, it's not that. I, I'm trying, because we're trying to do a bunch of different things in real time, which is have fun with this and laugh also at the parts that are intentionally over the top and laugh at the things that maybe aren't intentionally that aren't working. Take it as a TV show and try to consider it as such. And then there's all of the more hot button things that, that the show pushes, all those buttons that it pushes. Yeah. I, 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 I fundamentally don't, I mean, he's, he seems like a dopey cult leader. And he, she let them move in. Jeez, are, are there cult hours. leaders that you're like, that guy seems like a... I he, guess what I really don't see... tied down like, really tight. Like he's, he's got all of his eyes dotted. It, listen, I've watched the entire Waco trilogy. Yeah, I know. You know, the, the pre-Waco, the beyond Waco, the across the Waco verse. Uh-huh. Um, no, but I guess I just, I feel like I, I, I just narratively, I would be more locked in if I understood why she let all this happen this quickly, you know, and yeah. then, and then I think cause she's isolated. Yeah. And, and I, and I think and everybody around her is, is actually drawn. doing to her what he's doing anyway, for the most part, they're, okay. they're taking out from the bank, you know, and they're getting what they can out of her and they'll drop her as soon as they can, if they need to, you know, it's like even Hyman and, and yeah. you know, when he comes over and stuff and he's, he's sort of s- sniffing out that this is happening. I think it's more out of self-interest. I mean, he does like say like our girl's in trouble. Like there is a sort of paternal aspect to what he's doing there. But I think that um, it's pretty plausible to me that this could happen. I think within the universe of this show and this character's isolation in this weird house where she's living with like paid friends. Mike Dean is coming over. And Mike Dean is coming over. And that's... I mean, that's the game changer for me. (laughs) That's what makes you keep coming back. The Kanye's producer, Mike Dean is coming over. Can I ask you a question? I would love it. This is still in the idol, but it's a slightly different section of this conversation. Yeah. Let's do Jewish representation corner. Thank you. Thank you for this. Yeah, I feel, I, I'm thrilled. Azaria versus Eli Roth. Who's, who's, who's speaking to you right now? I'm, I'm team Azaria. Yeah. Uh, I, I am actually, if you ask me what I'm enjoying on this show, uh, especially now that, what, what's the song? Freak? What's, I'm a freak. Yeah. Kind of, kind of an earworm. Yeah. But that's being a lot of remixed, play. and there's yeah. going to be a choir, you know. Yeah, like. so it's less less compelling. Uh, what I like about the show right now is is Hank Azaria. Honestly, I've done a 180. I'm enjoying his performance. Uh, I like his outfits. Taking the Star of David out. I like his sunglasses. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that he is leaning into it, and that version of the show is one that I'm interested in. Uh, Maybe we should try potting next week, where I wear a windbreaker with no shirt on underneath and a giant, you know, a cross, and then you have. The Star of David with like the triangle sunglasses. You can wear half the star. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, I mean, look, I, this has always been tough to articulate and it's not the most fun radio, but like the things that I tend to be allergic to are when the, I feel the shock and transgressive transgression with an absence of empathy or humanity behind it or interest in the characters. Like that's just my, that's my kryptonite. I'm not interested in that. I'm trying to think of like, 
things historically that I have found transgressive or shocking that I did actually have empathy for characters in. I guess I would probably point to a lot of Lynch stuff, which I yeah. don't, I think has more than a little to do with this show, or at least is influencing the show. I mean, there is definitely a little bit of Mulholland to this, right? Like, I, yeah, I, I, I hope. I hope. Let's just see. Let's see. I think let let because I we're three in, we're halfway done. I I was saying uh we finished we finished recording last week and I was like, this has all the makings of a classic you fools. We always intended for this to be a one season experience. Yeah. Written all over it. And then the New York Post was like, this show's not coming back. And then someone close to the production said, No, no, it was always intended to be a one season. And then HBO came out and was like, We haven't decided yet. We haven't decided anything. Yeah. So we don't actually know. Is it a problem, broad strokes, separate and apart from my opinion, that three episodes in, it's kind of a shrug emoji in terms of what this is mm-hmm. and what it's doing? Probably, I would imagine in the back half, we'll know more. And if it, if it turns into Mulholland Drive, <laughs> I will be thrilled. I will legitimately I just mean it was, be thrilled. I'm trying to think of moments in like something that is shocking or something that is like, oh man, this is really pushing boundaries, where I'm also like, I really deeply am, am emotionally wrapped up in like this character. Yeah. You know, and I think this feels like an ego trip still to me okay. for, for, for two successful guys okay. who have the ability to do it. So do it. But yeah, That's, this is a bummer. <laughs> this is a bummer. Idle talk this week. You think so? I worry about that. That it's too, because you don't want to be forced to, to, to be like the naysayer. Well, there's not really a naysayer. You're speaking for the majority, I think. I, I feel the winds at my back. <laughs> I do. Which, which of us, do you think, like, like you know, in every long-term uh, relationship, mm-hmm. someone's a Joe Biden and someone's a Bobby Kennedy Jr. Like, which, which one do you think I am? <laughs> well, you're older than I am. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> okay, we'll leave it at that. We can stop talking about it uh, for now. Yeah, in, for six more days. Want to talk about Righteous Gemstones before we get to Gale? Yeah. Uh, goddamn. <laughs> so, third season, and, you know, I think that the second season, you started to see a little bit of a narrative around this show where people were recognizing that it was more than just a comedy, you know, and that it was actually this incredible family drama as well, which I agree with. I, I, I think I still turn to this show for its comedic yeah, but fireworks. It's, but it's very succession-y. In a lot of ways. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Broad, broad ways. <laughs> Very broad. Um, I wanted to take a quick moment to shout out Edie Patterson, mm-hmm. who secret MVP of the show and has just been really cracking me up these first two episodes that went up on Sunday night. Um, one of the things I love about this show is they are able to bring people into play mm-hmm. uh, from outside of the, the greater Charleston universe. But then like the core... The core gemstones, the core four, mm-hmm. are really like pretty special, and like each season develop more and more. And you know, he's been on this show or working with Danny McBride for a long time, and I think you can you can see the the wings are fully spread. It is like Succession in that the show is at its best when the three siblings are together, yeah, with their own particularly in this case gross energy. <laughs> Just Edie. Danny and uh, Adam Devine, um, Kelvin, yeah. holding hands, yeah. or trying to hold hands. It, it's real. It's really, really good. But the thing that I, it is so, 
Look, I mean, in a way, you know, I love to do this. I love to try to make connections. One of the things that HBO traditionally does very well is let people play, build their own sandbox and then play in it. I don't particularly like the sand currently in the Idol sandbox, but the McBride, Jody Hill, David Gordon Green sandbox is totally incredible. And that's probably not sand. So don't snort too much of it. <laughs> and the, the, it's such a specific aesthetic. And then to your point, like, then they bring in, they just call up the HBO All-Star line. And they're like, can we have Shea Wiggum? And by the way, one thing we love doing on the show is old man makeup. Yeah. And he's a uh, chain-smoking Christian race, driver. race he's car driver. He's basically Richard Petty, yeah. And he's incredible. Yeah. I mean, the fact that this man is the best on-screen cigarette smoker in any era, whether it's Gaslit or Perry Mason or this, like, Boardwalk Empire, he rules. Yeah. And then Stephen Dorff comes peacock strutting out of an Escalade. And he can he can hang? Yeah. Lucas Haas, Steve Zahn, yeah, is really it's really funny, and it's just so it's I the thing I love about the show is we're just like we're back, we're yeah, back in it. Uh, I love also like the way that they are able to kind of manufacture narrative mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, bring Kirsten Johnson in and be like, yeah, because yes, because because Eli had a sister, you know what I mean? Like it's the the, the they keep finding story. While while still remaining like really reliably entertaining on a week to week basis, so I'm I'm just so thrilled to have it back. Are, are you upset that sugar cookies are fake? Yeah. <laughs> What's amazing about the show, honestly, is that it is different than. I mean, Eastbound and Down is our north star. We yeah. love that show, maybe more than most shows. I mean, the idea of it being like a collective shared space is really prominent. Like, I think I still think when Danny McBride does the thing that he does, it's funnier than anything else on TV. So when he's leading the interrogation slash beach beat no, down. No, when he's going to race Stephen Dorff. Yeah. And he's like, this goddamn car. That's actually me in my car. That was very, I felt seen in that. Yeah. Um, but he shares the screen so much. And he he really, he. He's, you know, he's become a past That shot guy. of him finally popping the clutch and his and his his NASCAR card taking off and then immediately just going right into the wall. Do you think you could drive one of those cars? No, I don't know how to drive stick. Oh, I do. Do Does you? That, yeah. Still? You don't forget it. Okay. Yeah. Kaya, can you drive stick? I actually can. Yes. Interesting. I wonder what the percentage of Americans are who can drive stick. If that's like almost like, you know, we thought everybody was going to go see The Flash, but they didn't. Or it's like writing cursive, which they don't teach anymore. Yeah. But like, that's what we did when you were in Europe. Kai and I just like did ad reads and drove stick shift cars around. Do you think there are currently more stick shift drivers than there are idle fans? <laughs> Kai, Kai, nodded. Kai is nodding. <laughs> um, you didn't even turn. You could just sense it. You know, we are, we, we are united on a number of issues facing America today. Okay. Should we get into our Gail Simmons interview? I feel like we should. Okay. On Thursday, when we come back, we'll do The Bear, which is dropping its entire season on Thursday. And as you said, we're not going to... We're going to pace ourselves. Yeah. We're going to pace ourselves. Uh, and then we'll also talk some Black Mirror, hopefully. Uh, Andy, it's been a wonderful experience hanging out with you this morning. <laughs> as always, intellectually stimulating Was and it? also emotionally supportive. But also like morally questioning. In a way, right? I think we're good. I think you think that we're not good or that this is getting contentious. It's not. Oh, no, I think we're good. Yeah. I just think sometimes, you know, maybe you're just not ready for the truths that I'm bringing. <laughs> okay. You know, but I think you'll work through them. <laughs> thanks to Kaya for producing us today. And thanks to Gail Simmons for it, appearing. You can hear her coming up next. And it probably goes without saying that we talked to Gail about season 20 of Top Chef. Oh, yeah. There's some spoilers.
and season 20. And who won season 20, but also other things. Also, you probably know that Padma Lakshmi is leaving the show. That's not a spoiler, right? Nope. Great. Let's get into it. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now, they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. For first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade? Boulder Dash. Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies splendor. For each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. This episode is brought to you by 7-Eleven. Cold slurpy drinks and a hot summer day are a match made in heaven. And your favorite refreshment just got even better. Let's talk about 7-Eleven's $1 small slurpy drink. With seven rewards, it's the classic frozen fizzy treat you can't get anywhere else. I'm a blue raspberry guy. Just know that about me. Know that about me going forward. Anytime there's a drink like this, I'm in on the blue raspberry. If you're feeling thirsty, feeling thirsty right now, how about going to visit a 7-Eleven valid through 1725? 7-Eleven has the right to end this promotion early, plus tax. Participating U.S. stores, see app for full terms. All rights reserved. Gail Simmons, thank you so much for joining the Watch Podcast again. And thank you so much for an amazing season of Top Chef. Andy and I are so excited to talk to you about this, in a lot of ways, like, I think paradigm-shifting season. Could be. Yeah. Oh, I like the sound of that. And I don't think you're wrong. First of all, you're welcome. (laughs) Um, but really I feel incredibly grateful to have been part of it too. So it seemed for us as fans, it seemed pretty clear early on in season 20 that the level of cooking and the level of competition were higher than maybe the show had ever seen. I was wondering if Mm. that was your experience as well and how quickly that came into focus for you and your fellow judges. Well, that was by design, right? Uh, so we had high expectations because we set this season up to be unlike any other season before it. I mean, this was a season of all-stars from around the world. And when I say all-stars, you know, we've done all-star seasons before, but this season was about winners and finalists from 11, or there were 11 different countries, 15 chefs represented from 11 countries who had won or been finalists on their season, on their version, all over the world. So they were not, you know, they'd already all played the game and half of them had already won the game. So they better be good is the first thing, right? (laughs) Um, And we did, you know, we, when I say we, I mean my producers, uh, some of whom you've met, have uh, really did extensive research in 
coordination with the showrunners and executive producers from their from all of their respective variations of the show in all these countries around the world to really pick the the, the people they thought could represent their country the best. So it was sort of like this Olympic top chef season and they were all pro athletes in every way. And they were ready and they had been training for this. And, and then they came and I think it was both just exactly as they remembered their own seasons to be, but also in a lot of ways, much harder with other layers that we didn't anticipate. Yes. We knew from the beginning that they were all pretty good. And, and it, it did show up very, very quickly. You know, that first elimination challenge, there was, there was just a level of like finesse and creative energy that we were incredibly impressed by. Had you guessed it on any of the global top chefs or had you eaten some of any of their food before or was it really mostly the U.S. chefs that you had experienced? Interestingly, I'm the only one who's ever, I think, been on an international version of the show because I'm Canadian. I guessed judged on the very first season of Top Chef Canada. And then I went back just three or four months before we went to London. And I guest judged Restaurant Wars on season 10 of Top Chef Canada. Oh, wow. And so interestingly, season one of Top Chef Canada was Dale's season. And so I had met Dale before, very, you know, briefly in, in one challenge quite early in the season. I think that was season one. It was a long, long time ago. But it was, you know, I think one of the first two or three episodes of the season that I guessed it on. So I had met him. I remembered him. I knew he'd gotten to the finals of his season. Um, and I follow sort of up over here, like generally, I follow Top Chef Canada a little bit because obviously it's my homeland and a lot of my friends are on it as guest judges. And I've known over the years some chefs who've been contestants because when I go home, I do a lot of eating. And so I knew some of the players um, and I'm, I'm quite close with a few of the guests and the host. The host is an amazing woman named Eden um, Greenspan who lived in New York for a long time She's and is now back in Toronto. That's right. That. And she is a really close friend. I mean, and personal friend. So, you know, I, I sort of was like very aware of what was happening in the Canadian version, uh, but that was it. The only other connection that our show has had to a lot of these versions is that our producers are in touch. And so we are, they often share best practices. They share challenge ideas. They share learnings. And so we have actually taken and modified several challenges over the last few years from international versions oh, to bring onto the show. So um, actually the coolest thing is that after our all-star season in 2019, uh, Melissa King's season that she won where we were in LA and then we went to uh, Italy and that was right before the shutdown. We were in Italy for, you know, for two weeks shooting our finale. And when we all flew home from Italy, four of our executive producers flew on to Paris for like this Paris think tank. It was an amazing thing. They had a top chef executive producer conference mm. where all the executive producers of all of the variations around the world met in Paris for three days and brainstormed and talked and shared insights. And when they came home, that's how World All-Stars was born. And so they also brought a bunch of challenge ideas with them. And those challenges appeared in our Portland season, our Houston season, uh, you know, the doppelganger challenge we did in Houston, the other challenge that was the French challenge, the other challenge that came from 
from learning about it from other variations, international variations, was the challenge where we put the chef in like a black box and they had to cook what the other person was making. Yeah, the, that the Olympians? Was, oh, or, yeah. Correct. Yeah. Yes, yes. God, you're so good. You're so much better than me. Um, that was a, well, that was um, borrowed from an international version challenge. So, so that's kind of what's been amazing about having all these other variations out there. They're all, you know, take our framework, but they have all their own creative ideas and we're able to share a lot of that now. And so that's how World All Stars even came about in the first place. I just want to say up top that a Top Chef think tank in Paris sounds a lot better than like an offsite in Indianapolis. You know, like a, I know, right? like a sales conference in Orlando or something. I was begging to go. I literally was begging Donnie and our showrunner when they were leaving from Paris. I was like, wait, I can come. I'll be really helpful. I'll be your intern. I'll get you guys coffee. I just want to be a fly on the wall. They shut that down very quickly. But uh, it was it was amazing that they came back super invigorated and you know they learned so much because everyone tweaks the formula. And, and, and then we learned so much more about that on World All-Stars when we started shooting because we got to talk to the contestants and as you often saw the contestants would speak to each other about how they did it in their own countries and the things that were different and the same it seemed it was interesting to see how successful some of the american contestants were um and i wonder I know. uh n- not to be well i guess since you're an international you can have that that perspective as well i like i i wasn't sure if that was a surprise to you guys internally, if they were going to be able to to hang with some of the international cooks, or whether the Top Chef, the the game was a common language the way English was. Interestingly, we talked a lot about this. We brought obviously there were four Americans, which was the most representative, you know, of any of the countries because we are the American version. And actually, our conversation, Tom and I specifically talked a lot leading up to it about what kind of advantage that would give them because English is their first language. And I actually think one of the greatest challenges to some of the most talented chefs on the show was that English was not their first language. And so not only did it make it more of a challenge for them learning the rules to every challenge and and communication in the kitchen, but then also communication at judges table. Uh, They were all extraordinary, but you know, when, when Thai is your first language and Italian is your fifth language and English is your 18th language. You know, these are, are complicated layers that we, we knew of and we were going to excited to kind of see how they played out and also wanted to make sure it was as fair as possible. And of course the English speakers and specifically the Americans did have a bit of an advantage perhaps um, not only because of the language, but because they played our version yeah. before we, we knew them. I actually, I knew that some of them could hang. I certainly knew that Buddha could hang because he was like fresh oh, out of the competition. We're, we're going to get to Buddha. We have some <laughs> um, questions. Yeah, I, I know. I, I assume. Um, you know, really, I, I wondered about Amar because he'd been out of the game for a while. And that, I just didn't know if he was kind of his, his cooking level. I, I hadn't kept up with him. And so when they told me that he was one of the international contestants, I, you know, I was like, oh, that's an outlier. Let's see how that goes. But wow, he has, I mean, he's just, he makes me so happy, Amar. He really showed up and pushed himself. He kept talking about how he's the old guy and he's like 40 or something. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to hear <laughs> any of that. But... <laughs> it made me feel really terrible. But, but right. But, you know, they, yeah, I mean, but then, you know, Don, who obviously is extraordinary and talented in every way, didn't make it very far. And that's okay, too, because it would be really boring, I think, if all four Americans yeah. made it to the very end. 
but they did pretty well, all things considered, obviously. I thought, and I, and I say this as, as praise, not this is not meant as criticism, but I thought this season really highlighted the difference between just pure cooking chops and the ability to play the game and what you need, and, you know, what each, yes. what each challenge demands and which, which bucket it pulls from. Um, specifically, I was going to bring up Amar because if you look at, as you said, like his CV, his vibe, you wouldn't think he would be able to hang like with these Michelin level st- uh, cooks and that's not a ding on him. But I was really struck by the fact that Begonia, who came in cooking what looked like some of the most unique and inventive food that you've had in 20 seasons, was undone by you know re- a relatively conventional stress moment, misreading the challenge type of thing, while Amar was playing with a freedom. And I, and I intentionally using like an NBA way of speaking about yeah. things. You know, he he let yeah, the game yeah, come no, to I'm him. He was, it, I like it. he was cooking with with Cost sort of money. joy and freedom, yeah. and he understood in the right moments that, especially that that same challenge where Begonia went home, just cook the most comfortable. You won thing. that challenge, yeah. That, I thought that was a remarkable episode because of well, that. comforting, but it was also like layered and beautiful. Yes, I don't and, mean to ding and it. it took it took yeah. Oh no, you're not. I didn't read it that way at all. But it was you know it was sort of like secretly really complex, but it read at, as this very comforting, simple, simple dish. You know, it took him twenty four hours all to night, cook it yeah. because he braised those lamb shanks and and it was so beautiful. And, and that you're you're absolutely right, Begonia. I will say, and again, Tom and I have talked about this point at length too begonia absolutely cooked some of the most interesting food we've ever eaten on the show uh and we i adore her i can't wait to i hope one day visit her and eat her food in her restaurant and she's clearly like her brain works in a different way and i was so uh moved by a lot of her food and just sort of fascinated by her presentation it felt truly innovative and um, and unique. And that's like a rare thing these days because also the world is so small, right? Tom loves to talk about how, you know, Tom's the OG. He cooked it in a different era when if you wanted to learn about a cuisine or a style of a restaurant or a renowned chef's food, you had to like get on a plane and go to that place. And that's how you would learn about another approach to cooking. And now you just have to open your phone and follow a bunch of people. And soon everybody's food starts looking alike because it's so accessible to see what other people are making at any given moment. And it, it sort of, you know, meshes everything together and everyone's kind of blends in. But then you get someone like Begonia who comes along and you realize that there really is so much happening out there beyond uh, the conventional way of thinking and cooking about like with, you know, with food, she really, she really had this beautiful, interesting approach that made us really excited and hopeful, regardless of the fact that she didn't make it necessarily quite to the end. Um, I still have the utmost respect for her style of cooking because it was so interesting and like just absolutely brilliant. I thought I would start asking, we can, we can start our voodoo questions now. Uh, so I was rewatching the finale and I was rewatching, um, the judges table and there's this really interesting moment where I think it's his dessert and you say something like, it's the most playful thing I've had from him in a while. It was like some, some line like that. Mm. And it occurred to me that I wonder if, um, you had eaten so many consecutive Buddha dishes over the two seasons yeah. That it, I wonder I if basically it was, just ate Buddha food for a year and a half. Ba- right, and I was like, you know I, mean? I hadn't really considered <laughs> the like fact my private chef. that that might have been working against him a little bit at a certain point. Like in in a way, he 
did overcome that as well, which is that he can't surprise you guys anymore because he's been cooking for you for two seasons of television. He's been in every single challenge pretty much like he's in the mix. He's getting to the end of the, the episodes every time you're considering his food. You know, when you put it in that context, can you can you even like kind of explain to us what, what an amazing feat he just accomplished by winning back-to-back seasons? Yeah. Yeah, I haven't thought about it that way, which is interesting. Um, and I appreciate that point. I thought about it more. Yes, we had come to know him and his food was the freshest in all of our minds, right? So that works for you and against you. Um, I thought I thought about it more because he did surprise us all. I mean, time and again, he still came to the table, literally, figuratively, um, with an incredible plate of food, right? That felt innovative and interesting and beautiful, beautiful and technically so um, solid and, you know, hard to argue. It's, it's deliciousness. But there was a conversation that we were always having about Buddha in that it all sometimes can feel really technical and really um, sometimes uh, I'm trying to think about word because certain words I don't want to give the wrong impression about, you know, um, his style can be incredibly precious and it is very specific, right? So when you ask him to do other things outside of that, is he able to, or does he only, is he only able to cook with like tweezers and molds and, you know, twills shaped like leaves. And even though they are absolutely him and they make him the chef that he is, but then you see episodes, you know, the one that comes to mind, actually I was, I was with Buddha yesterday. We were in Aspen together for his prize at the classic in Aspen. And uh, someone came up to him to talk to him about his, his marriage pasta the Amatriciana, the, the beautiful bowl of pasta he made in Houston for us. And so then there's moments where you're like, oh yeah, no, no, no. Buddha can do it all. And he does push himself to be homey when it meet when he needs to be. And to be um, you know, very sort of like fine dining when he needs to be. But he does have the capability to switch lanes. And sometimes I we forget that because we think of him in this one very specific lane. Um the the dessert he made on Restaurant Wars was an example of that, and the dessert in his final meal, absolutely, um, where he, he like sometimes his food feels so technical that you wonder if it has like a meaning or if you're really seeing him or if you're just seeing this like kind of robotic way that he was taught to cook by all the three Michelin star chefs he's worked for, right. and how much of that is really from his heart. But he does surprise me, and he does cook these things that have many layers of purpose and you know you think about the the inspiration that he calls from his father from his from Australia from his wife from you know the the place he's in and he's able to bring these moments and and he is incredibly consistent with them and it's hard to ding him Mm -hmm. for for being consistent Right. right for having this point of view that never falters it never wavers he never compromises his style he figures out a way to make it work for every challenge and that is i think why he was able to do what he did and win back to back seasons the second one being against some pretty 
extraordinary international competitors. Speaking of being he old, really rose to the challenge. He certainly did. And speaking yeah. of, speaking of being older than Amar, which is a, a problem <laughs> for, for all of us, I think. I, this this season made me realize that I've now watched, I guess, 301 televised episodes of Top Chef in my life. And it really brought into mind thank, that, that was a, that was much. that was a dunk on him because I think he started watching later. But um <laughs> I I, went back though. He went back. Yeah. <laughs> the, the pandemic was uh, long. Um it made me realize I, just how you know, so I don't actually recommend season one to anyone. No, it's it was a very different show. I don't think I actually ever saw season one. Yeah. But the, the only season one yeah. example I wanted to pull from was just what you it, know it, it meant to compete on the show where you mm-hmm. give someone like Harold, whose restaurants in New York I miss, who was a cook who cooked at restaurants, and he won the show. Mm-hmm. To a, to yeah, a contest- he was a line cook at the time. Right, mm-hmm. to a contestant like Buddha, who works in a restaurant in New York, but also in some ways grew up on the show and was educated by the show. His language is the show. His competitive juices are stoked by the show. And it's a very different, almost he's stepping into a very different mm-hmm. career that's possible because of the previous 1920 seasons of the show. You know, he's... He, it's, sometimes you watch this and I, I, I commend him and I love watching him, but it seems like he was made in a lab to dominate on Top Chef and it's really breathtaking. He made us realize, we knew this, but obviously now the, the competition has changed and it becomes sort of very meta because the world reflects the show and the show reflects mm-hmm. the world about how there is a whole generation of cooks who now come on the yes. show having watched every season, having studied. I mean, he, Th- he didn't just watch This is watch also every happening season. on Survivor. Yes, it's happening, I assume, on a lot of yeah. competitions. Of course. It, of course it is. And because of that, the game has to change. So the game keeps changing. And because of that, the contestants keep changing. And because of that, the game keeps changing. And it's, you know, this loop that it, it forces us to push ourselves and the challenges and the shows more because we have to keep up with and challenge our contestants. Because they know all of our tricks at this point, and they are studying it the way that you literally like study football plays, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And um, and can watch games and can watch another team and know exactly how they work and where their weaknesses are and at what point in the game they pull in certain players. I mean, this is not a metaphor I can play in, but I'm trying really hard for <laughs> you guys great. right now. We appreciate that. Um, <laughs> and thank you, thank you. I'm making it all up completely. I mean, I'm from Canada. I don't even know how to play football. But, um, uh, you know, Canadian football. Canadian different, football. It's a different game. So, yeah. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> I, you know, I, so, so you're right. Like, it, it, he, but he became the poster child for that, right? Because he did it in a way that no one before him had actually really taken the time to do. But I guarantee going forward, everyone will and everyone can. I mean, it's all out there to watch and rewatch and understand. And there are patterns. But it also, in a great way, forces us to rethink and push ourselves and, you know, we're, we're casting differently now. I mean, we're casting differently all the time because we're able to sort of up the stakes. But we have to go into it with open eyes ourselves, knowing that the contestants know us so intimately and know the, the show and the game so well. That said... And I think Buddha will say this as well. It is one thing to be an armchair. What's the metaphor? Uh, armchair quarterback. Like, yeah, um, armchair expert, you know, armchair expert. Yeah. An armchair. Thank you. Monday what morning armchair is quarterback that expert. That's right. My um, bad. I got the, well, the football thing was, was going. I was just trying to, yeah. That's it. That's it. That's it. Uh, it's another thing to then be on the field, right? Or on the court. And, and that 
still, I think, blows everybody's mind and is harder, even for Buddha. Like, I don't think the Buddha sailed by. No, we and you know, we are not. Had to work we are not anti Buddha. It. It's just it, there was a moment in the oh, suddenly at the I end know of the that. season. Oh, no, we all feel the same. But if, if he he did suddenly feel like an inevitability, like Thanos in the Marvel movies, <laughs> and I and I wondered if this yeah. was more the edit or if there was some truth to this in the finale that it did feel like in watching the season twenty finale that the judges were looking for reasons to elevate the other contestants against his dominance that there were that had, had, had sarah cooked had the li- had the liver worked out she was close yeah because you know, she- there's there's a moment where tom says it like he like it basically hits all of you that sarah might have won if it liver had worked out and padma just like puts her head in her hands and i kind of it just does seem like it's <laughs> like oh sarah lost it like right there and but she was neck and neck with him yeah she did her food man talk about also a comeback like four ways from everything we'll get to that in a minute but it was his to lose it was by then but i will tell you and i say this with total honesty halfway through the season it was not a foregone conclusion it is never a foregone conclusion until that last meal because you know i say this all the time we know who the best cooks are pretty early in the game but that does not mean that they win Yeah. Time and again, you make one mistake, you have one bad dish, and you go home, even if you may be the best cook in the kitchen. And it has happened to so many great competitors that we love. Think about Kwame. Think about, you know, there's like so many chefs over the years who, we, who we've had to say goodbye to, knowing that they really could have won the whole thing had they not made that one mistake. Um, so I never felt during the season that it was like, well, we might as well just give it to Buddha on episode three. That was not the case. Yeah. He was on the bottom a couple of times. You know, we were talking, yes, we were on a panel this weekend at the Food and Wine Classic in Aspen and he was talking about how he completely forgot to memorize a biscuit recipe and that biscuit quick buyer, he was on the bottom and he like, he's, he can be on the bottom. Everyone's on the bottom. It's a hard game. He was, people forget that he was on the bottom. He is, uh, you know, I was joking. He's like 99% perfect, yeah. but that 0.1, 0.01% put you on the bottom sometimes and he's flawed and there were a lot of times when his dishes like were amazing but not you know everyone's were amazing and there were certainly many dishes that were better than his on a number of occasions but it's a long game and uh and he plays that and he knows that a couple of specifics from this season that i was curious about um one was in restaurant wars there was a change this season where instead of doing front of the house the contestants were using the front of the house staff of a three-star Michelin restaurant in the heart of London. <laughs> yeah. That did change the nature of that competition of that week. And I was curious your thoughts on that, on, on what it gave you and maybe what it took away. I actually, before I answer that question, I would actually love to pose the question to you guys oh, first. This is what great. did you guys think of that change? I'm very curious because we had a lot of reasons for making that change. And I would love to know how it felt from the, from the, Viewer. I personally really liked it. I I I always find it really good television to watch people work front of the house, but I also don't necessarily think it's fair for a, a top chef contestant to get sometimes like dinged for whether or not they're a good mate, a good host and can plan service. Although I know that is part of like being a chef and running your own restaurant, restaurant wars, it's what it says on the sticker is like, you should be able to think about all the dimensions of the dining experience. 
But I thought it was a cool twist. There were some moments where I was like, whoa, like this is so different to see Tom go behind the counter, you know, and like check on something. What, what did you think? <laughs> that was like when the congressman <laughs> said, you lie. Like that was like, I couldn't believe Tom yeah. was doing it. It was such a shocking breach of decorum. I, I, we felt the same when he, when he got up there, we were like, wait, Tom, sit down. What are you doing? Not, what are you doing? Why are you? We just knew our, our director who yes. was like, you know, in the back village was like, what, what is happening right now? I don't have coverage of this. Wait a second. Wait a second. Unplanned. But that's also what was great. About. Tom spending too much Tom, time in last chance kitchen. He Tom. gets real handsy. He gets real up close and personal. There, and then all of a sudden he's just like, I guess we're just, this is still my house. I hear what Chris is saying. It is his house. It kind of is. I, I broadly agree with him because this is, a, you know, this is a show about cooking and it's best to see that pure and undiluted. But I, I will say that it's, it's tradition on the show and I, one that I think people like Buddha are familiar with and should be prepared for. It's not as if um, a Top Chef winner or a runner-up or even contestant is walking into a world where they'll necessarily be back running and expediting at one restaurant. They're walking into a much broader media landscape where greeting people and managing people's expectations is part of it. I don't mind seeing that be judged. But the biggest thing for me was by having a three-star Michelin front of the house manage and allay problems the way that it did, it kind of just turned it into another week. It was just another regular challenge where mm. they're just cooking. This mm. time they're cooking a chef's table dinner. And all the other stressors um, being removed made it kind of conventional for me in a way that I, I was disappointed in. Thank you for the market research. Yeah, sure. <laughs> that was very, very go to, go to any Top Chef think tanks in... Uh, yeah, outside of the country yeah, only. Yeah, exactly. In Paris, <laughs> yeah. right. Preferably in Tokyo, Paris, or... Yeah. Sam Powell. But anyway, yes. Um, that was really interesting. Thank you. Uh, because, you know, every, well, every restaurant wars, there is an element that becomes a bit of a like social experiment, right? Mm-hmm. We try to change something every single time for the reason we discussed, because people know the game and they expect it and they know that it's episode eight or nine and they know that it's, that there is a certain kind of structure to, to it. And how can we change it? The discussion of back of the house, front of the house, has been something that has been on the table for us for, you know, many, many seasons. Tom has always, not always, but for especially the last several seasons, has always has tried to push it to just let them cook. They're still cooking a tasting menu. They're cooking for chef's table. They're cooking for 50 diners. They still have to come up with a concept. They have to work cohesively. It has to, you know, the, the kind of big vision of this is the concept. And are they able to come up with a viable restaurant concept and then deliver on that concept um, in, in a full expression, right? And, you know, you think about last season, and it's the exact, the perfect example of it, Buddha crushed the front of the house and won Restaurant Wars. Jackson in the other restaurant was a mess. And even though we all know that he had, a, that is a perfect example, he had a real chance at winning the whole thing. He was Buddha's greatest competitor on the Houston season, I think. Um, and he messed up at Restaurant Wars because he was not a good maitre d'. And he was really, he was, he's a lovely person, but his expertise do not lie in managing the front of a restaurant. Even though he's a restaurant owner himself and he does it very well, all of those layers tripped him up and he went home for it. And so when we had the opportunity to cook in Claire's restaurant, to cook at Core, also put in the layers that we've also talked about, which is that English isn't everybody's first language. 
there are, we didn't know how the, we didn't know how the teams were going to play out, right? Who would be on each team, what their English would be, what their, we wanted to just try and make it, especially for these chefs at the level they were at as cooks, but how different they were from around the world in the way that they cooked in the places that they cooked. We, when we were designing it, which we designed months before, weeks before, right? We weren't designing it the night before based on who was left in the game. By then it's already in motion. We wanted to make it, first of all, the best restaurant wars we've ever had in terms of the food, because we wanted to give them that opportunity. We wanted to respect the house. We wanted to respect Claire's house. Mm-hmm. And, and we didn't want someone just making a mess of her dining room. Uh, and really, we thought that that would then allow them to focus on that concept and execution and really taking advantage of that extraordinary kitchen and dining room in a way that we haven't been able to do before. So that was the reason. And Tom was like a real cheerleader of that. I do think that you lost something a little bit in that tension of the front of house job, which I do think is important as a restaurateur and as a chef these days. But I think you made up for it with the, um, the amazing level of detail. Yeah, in the I, I think that makes sense and it's defensible. And I, and I also would not be advocating for a return to the years when people went shopping for candles and plants. <laughs> like, I feel like that's, that's, exactly. that's, that's less good. But, yeah. but, but right. I think what was interesting about this, and I don't know how you would, this is a challenge for you and the other executive producers. What was compelling to me about that episode was that the winning team did do all that front of the house consideration and story building well, and narrative say. communication. How do you televise that in you know 58 minutes or whatever? I don't know. But that was the interesting piece to me that all of that thinking was there in the winning team. It wasn't just that they were cooking on a line, but that's harder to tell that story, I guess, in within the framework. Well, no, you saw, I mean, you did, we did tell it if that's what you got, because that's what I was about to say. And it wasn't just a Buddha show by any means. Actually, I think the front of house magic for UK was Sarah Bradley. Sarah, yeah, she had her notebook. I mean, think about the way she communicated to the staff, because it's, yes, of course they were a three-star mission restaurant and you were working with servers mm-hmm. and a general manager who knew that dining room intimately and the level of service, but they had never seen these people's food before and they had never uh, worked with these chefs and there still needs to be, I mean, a restaurant runs well and the ballet happens between the front and back of the house when the back of the house communicates and when there is a true collaboration between each side and even though we were working with an amazing pro as the maitre d' and general manager who was there with us, he still had to have that relationship with our chef. And it was, I think, Sarah who really was the star in that moment because she sure. was able to be so organized and communicate with him and give them an exact roadmap of how the, the night was going to go, let alone the fact that they had a great concept and then they delivered. All I agree. Food. I may have gotten distracted. Mine, I, I Googled okay. the, the head waiter and her LinkedIn page says like, my passion is bringing the highest level of service to all three-star restaurants around the globe. And I was like, okay, kind of a ringer. Um, the, the one yeah, other, well, I mean, Claire, Claire knows what she's doing. She does. The one other, um, it's not a point of contention, but just curiosity was about the finale itself. Because again, as someone who's watched so many episodes of the show, I remember being there for, and Chris and I have talked about this on previous podcasts, the, the finale that didn't work for me was the the Iron Chef finale, the Brooke and Kristen finale. And I remember I tweeted that. I wrote a piece about it. And Tom tweeted at me and said, you're right, not doing that again. And I was like, thank you, I Chef. I was going to say, I was going to say, for what it's worth, 
that smell like didn't work for anybody. Yes. So I, I mean, exactly. it stands as our poster child for what never ever to try and do again. And let me assure you, it was way worse for me, Tom and Padma. Oh, God. It was a terrible afternoon. Terrible. So, so the, the question though, is that we've reached this point now where the finale is so open-ended, you know, they've been, they've been constrained by challenges and um, by the clock. I mean, they're still constrained by the clock, but constrained by so many things up to that point that for me, this finale felt almost a little bit like a letdown because it was just, okay, now go cook the meal that you probably, I mean, this wasn't text, but subtext that is been. that you've been thinking about for however many weeks before you even landed in London. And that did feel like it robbed me of some drama that I was hoping for. And I wonder if that's a conversation, you, I know you're always tweaking everything, if there's, if there's an ongoing conversation about that or if you feel the same way at all internally. Well, it will be now. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> yeah, no, you're, that's why I love talking to you guys so much because you are so analytical and it all helps. The, the best thing about being on Top Chef, I mean, there's a lot of good things. I love the food and I love the travel and I love the people. But the best thing about being on Top Chef is that it is a show that evolves. Yeah. yeah. And we, I think that's why we're still on the air because every season we make changes and we make tweaks and, and Donine and her team are so good at looking at what, what worked and what didn't in real time and changing it for the next season. And things like restaurant wars or things like how we work through the pandemic or the contestants or the, you know, taking out a lot of the kitchen reality or taking out of the home reality. And there's so many levels of changes we make every season to refine and tighten things up and to listen to our, our fans. Um, and I fully hear that everyone knows what the finale is going to be before you even start episode one, because that's what our finale has become. And so perhaps it is time to look at that more closely uh, because I do think you're right to some degree. The, the defense of it is that the entire season long, we don't let them, and I use this in quote, cook their own food, right? right? We give them so many constraints, every episode, every challenge, and they're constantly saying to us when they're eliminated, if they're eliminated in episode three or episode seven, uh, but I still haven't cooked my food for you. I still right. haven't shown you what I could do. I didn't get a chance to really cook. And our response is, if we wanted you to do that, we would just come to your restaurant. The whole point is to take you out of your comfort zone and put you in unexpected places and push you in different directions than you've ever been pushed before and see if you can still cook uh, your food and show us your point of view. Um, and so we do want them to have that freedom to really finally show us whatever they want to show us that they haven't had a chance to show us before in a way that feels like we're not like helicopter parents. Uh, but you know, that's okay. It's something I hadn't thought of, but you, but you might lose that, that intensity in some ways. That doesn't also mean that it's perfect. That's what sort of, as the person who gets to eat all of those dishes, I think about because they come to the table. And when I read the menu, when we first sit down and read their menu for the first time, I get so excited and then sometimes disappointed because it should be perfect. We've finally given you the chance to, to execute this menu that you've probably had planned yeah. a year ago. Uh, sometimes they have to make tweaks based on ingredients and, you know, kitchen, but really it should be 100%. All three of them should be 100% and they're not. So that's where 
it kind of allows us to really separate that winner because they still make mistakes. If you guys um, are interested, I do have a notebook of ideas. I could be like the Alain Ducasse. Yeah, no, I would. I'm I, 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 I'd, I'd like to. I'd like to fly to Paris <laughs> with a glass of wine, share my thoughts, and then leave yes. before decisions are made. That's the that's the Perfect. model I'd like. Um, you're hired. My favorite part about that whole bit <laughs> was the uh, how how many times like people were like, "He's going to leave now," yeah. and he was like, "No, no, no! I'm going to have one more glass of wine on this. This boat. is this is my boat." <laughs> yeah. It's incredible. What a king. Um, I mean, having, having a land test there with his champagne was sort of amazing. And then he did leave before we ate anything. <laughs> but uh, he has obligations. He's a very busy man. Uh, and I do think that it was like such an honor to have him there. And he did have a lot to say to us about, you know, the show. And, and he, he stuck his finger in a lot of mise en place, which was exactly what we wanted him to do. Um, we don't want to take up too much of your time. We would be remiss if we didn't talk about your your longtime uh, host who's leaving the show after after so many seasons, Padma. And, you know, if you watch as the final dinner and, and the finale is served, she obviously becomes very emotional at the end of that dinner, so it almost suggests that she kind of knew that this decision was coming. I was just wondering, without even putting too specific of a question on it, if you could describe what this experience has been like working with her over the last 19 seasons, 19 seasons of TV and, yeah. and you know, what she's meant to you and what she's meant to the show. Sure. You know, as much as a lot of people grew up watching us, we grew up together, yeah. you know, in this, in our careers anyway. Um, I was 30 and she was 35, I guess, when we met. And I don't want to do the math, but you guys can do the math. And um, it wasn't 19 years, just to be clear, <laughs> but close, but close. Um, and, um, you know, our show has took a, on a life that we never anticipated. And it took us around the world and it took our, and, and all the while we were living our lives together in a lot of ways, all of us. And I don't just mean Tom Padma and I, I mean our crew, our director, our producers, our camera operators and audio technicians and our head of art and our culinary producers. I mean, this is a team of now 150 people, um, many of whom have been with us since season two and three. And so everyone plays a huge role. And she certainly was, and you know, she came on with a lot of hesitancy. I think it was a very new position for her. And she talks a lot about having kind of imposter syndrome when she started because she didn't come from a food background. She loved food, was a good cook, had written a cookbook as a model, you know, and her travels around the world. And she had absolute passion for it. But this was stepping into a very different role for her than she'd ever done before. And it's the same way it took all of us a few years to figure out our own chemistry and, and then our individual points of view and our own voices and be comfortable in those voices. Um, you know, it was the same for her and I think she did it beautifully and, and really owned her knowledge and her passion on the show. And I think that came through, uh, and we've had like so many crazy adventures together, the things that we've all been through, uh, for this kind of two months a year that we're all sort of at summer camp for the last 17 years, it, like there's nothing else like it. We talk a lot about how every class of chefs, every season of chefs has this experience together. And there's no one else who can say they've gone through that 
And so they are, of course, bonded for life in this weird way. You know, they've lived through this, this battle and they've come out the other side and they'll never be the same. And I think that that applies to, to the three of us and, and also to all of us as a crew. And so that is remarkable. And she has been a great mentor to me in a lot of ways as a, as a mom, she became a mom, I think four years before me, five years before me. And, um, and really set a precedent on our set for what that means and to, and to give us the space to, um, to do our best work and also to have our lives and our children and make it a workplace that understood that. And it allowed a lot of our crew to be the same. Right. Um, so that's amazing. And I, and I think she's, I don't know, she's still my friend. She's not going anywhere in my life. Yeah. So I don't feel as sad about it, maybe, as other people. <laughs> um, but she'll be missed. I mean, and but truthfully, our show has never been about us. Mm-hmm. Our show's not about Padma. And I mean this in the best way. Our show's not about Tom. It's not about me. It's not about Padma. Our show is about our chefs. And it'll continue to be about our chefs. And we are going to make changes. And we always do. And I think that change is really good. And as I said before, our show has always been awesome at taking a step back and evolving. And this will just be another evolution. But I, I don't to, think it'll change the quality of the show in any way. I want to ask you about the evolution, but I did just have to ask, did, did you know or did you have a sense Was this that, that this might be coming? Or is every season like you never know what's going to come the next year? Well, certainly this is a different change than the other things you never know. I mean, we never know where the next location is going to no, be. No, but I mean, like when, you, when you were sitting down in it's Paris. It's going to be together. Did you know that this was her last uh, no, final no, table? No, oh. we did not. We shot we shot that season in Paris in October. You know, that yeah. was six months ago. Yeah. No, we did not know. Can I tell you if Padma knew or not? No, I, I don't know the answer to that. Okay. But I knew she was leaving before she announced it on her social media. Right, yeah. I figured that. So in terms of the <laughs> in terms of the evolution, I mean, I think that's one of the things that's really as you said, it's exciting as fans of the show and it, and it allows us to be fans of the people who come from the show, the people who host the show, but the show itself because it has really grown to meet every moment um, and to new challenges. So I, I love even just what you just said, that that this is an opportunity to evolve in a different way going forward to the show. Um, mm-hmm. I know you can't spoil, although we should say that when you were with us, kind enough to join us last year, you did, when we stopped recording, tell us that you were doing an international season. <laughs> so we hope we can get some more off-the-record goodies uh, Oh, again. right, I did. I did. did. And, and I was like, oh, God, wait. And stop. we kept it. <laughs> we edited it. We were really good. Um, you are. I appreciate that. This has been a wild run of an all-star season in L.A., uh, seeing if you could make the show during COVID, coming out of COVID, and then doing this international season um, that was the fruit of that um, confab in Paris years ago that Chris and I were very much not invited to. Um, I wasn't either. We're in it together. We're going to make our own confab in Paris, guys. Uh, Okay. I mean, listen, we can, we'll we'll arrange through the PR. We'll make it happen. Um, What do you feel like is the next evolution for the show? Just, and this doesn't have to be, I'm not mining for, for spoilers. I'm just curious for you. Like this is an opportunity. The host is leaving. You can evolve aspects of the show. You've done all these incredible things the last three years. What what do you feel is next? You know what we really want to do? We really just want to call it in. <laughs> <laughs> totally just joking. Totally joking. That, the really time to break that news is 41 minutes boys. into the conversation. Yeah. Yes. yes, exactly. We really just want to do nothing. We just want to sit back, have them make us some mac and cheese. And yeah. 
I don't know. <laughs> from a box? No, I'm totally... Get that. <laughs> from a box. Uh, who's who's going to buy Tom hats if he's the show ends? Yeah. Come on. We need right. to keep this going. Nice, I mean... Uh, our, our our head of wardrobe, Charlotte, is incredibly dedicated to Tom's hat. So I'm pretty certain so even if the show were to end tomorrow, she would spend her life buying Tom hats. She's she a queen. Help she is. Um, but, you know, and maybe that's, that's Padma's gift to us, is that she's forcing us to not be able to call it in for next season. <laughs> uh, not that we were going to. Uh, there is a world to explore, first and foremost, and that is built into the fabric of the show. Uh, we did one international season. We've been to, you know, we've been to what I think over, over 20 seasons, we've been to like 47 places or I, I'm not, you guys might know that statistic. Donine, our executive producer certainly knows that statistic. You know, how many cities we've been to, how many countries we've been to. They are a drop in the hat in the world and we are ready to take it on. So uh, I think where we're going next is going to be really unexpected. Um, both you know, we're coming back to the States, uh, at least partially. And I think it's going to be unexpected, which I'm really excited about because again, being Canadian, but also living in New York and, um, it's a part of the country. I don't get to go to a lot. Okay. And so I'm ready. I'm ready. We're all actually really excited and ready to, again, show another layer of American sort of like history and food that we actually have done nothing like, almost, almost nothing like it. And it just shows how diverse and massive and extraordinary this country is. And then we're going to, assuming that this all gets sorted out, go somewhere else, another part of the world uh, that is in complete contrast to that. Okay. So I think just inevitably it's easy. It's easy to keep evolving our show because there's a, there's a whole world out there um, that's sort of endless and what and infinite. steps have you and the producers taken to keep Budo away from the third straight <laughs> season? Like, do you have to change your numbers? Is there a security protocol? Yeah. It's so funny. We were at this panel on the weekend together and Buddha made that same joke. He was like, you know, I've real I submitted my application and I was turn I was refused. I was turned down. Um, but, you know, don't think he's going anywhere. The, the, poor, the poor man, he's having twins. I don't know if you heard that. Oh, wow. His wife is pregnant with twins. But he's got a busy year Good. ahead of him. He's best and, when he's uh, busy. But I'm I glad. am sure. Yes, that's right. He'll, he'll, they will make excellent twins. Uh, but I, uh, I, I don't think he's heard the last of us. That said, we're going to give him a rest for a minute. Uh, he can go enjoy the, um, the fruits of his victory. Finally, because he hasn't even been able to do that from Houston yet. Yeah. And I think that what we're going to do for this coming season is just try to like, you know, dig deeper. The cast is something I haven't met or don't know anything about them specifically yet, but I had a long talk with our casting director a couple weeks ago and like the enthusiasm, his eyes were like so wide talking to me about just what that international version of the show did to reinvigorate you know, domestic chefs here in America. So cool. And uh, and so that's where we start from every season. You know, it's not just what can we do differently than last season, but it's what can we build on from last season. And our wheels are always turning. It would be amazing though if, if Buddha showed up wearing a fake mustache and was like, no, I'm Duda. 
<laughs> but just driving driving a BMW with boxes and cases of San Pellegrino water in the back, just yeah. like yeah. pay no attention. Yeah. That's right. Um, Gail, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thanks for an amazing season of TV. We can't wait to see where it goes next. Yeah, we hope we talk to you again. We love the show, and thank you for everything. Thank you. I feel like we owe you like a, a residual check or a paycheck for all the insight that you provide every time I talk to you guys. We don't expect much. Just we'll just come to a tasting sometime. You know, it's yeah. Can, well, that guys, where are you based? We're in LA. 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 You are okay. But right. to be clear, we can... we're willing to travel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, and oh, internationally, I, I feel like we were holding back that idea, yeah. but now we're just going to be honest with you. No, no. You know, it's all it's all on the table. Okay, it's great. All on the table. <laughs> great. It's ridiculous that you haven't come, so we will we will figure that out. Thank you guys so much for your your insight. You too. (laughs) Take care. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.